Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. Hi, and welcome to the December edition of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. In this episode, we have Alan Conley and Catherine Renorden from UC Davis to discuss granulosa cell tumours, and Rose Talon from the RVC to tell us all about grading systems for equine glandular gastric disease. Alan Conley is a Professor of Population Health and Reproduction at UC Davis, as well as being the Director of the Clinical Endocrinology Laboratory and the John Hughes Endowed Chair in Equine Reproduction. Catherine Renorden did her residency in equine reproduction at UC Davis and is currently a European Veterinary Specialist in Equine Reproduction. We're lucky enough to have both of them join us to discuss their recent paper titled Equine granulosa cell tumours, among other ovarian conditions, diagnostic challenges. Alan and Catherine, thank you very much for joining us on the EVJ podcast this month. We're here to talk about granulosa cell tumours. Can I start by asking for a little bit of um, basics on granulosa cell tumours? So what would the classic presentation of a mare with a granulosa cell tumour be and how commonly do they occur in the, in the equine population? So what is widely regarded as the classic presentation of a mare with a GCT is a mare with a history of abnormal stadion-like behavior or nymphomania and sometimes prolonged anastrus, along with a unilaterally enlarged ovary with a lack of palpable ovulation and also a very small inactive contralateral ovary. Um, they are very common, uh, and they are, the far, they are by far the most common ovarian neoplastic condition in males, representing more than 85% of reproductive neoplasm and 2 to 3% of all tumors in horses. And how would a classic or a straightforward granulosa cell tumor be diagnosed in a mare? So as a clinician... Uh, the diagnosis is based on history, palpation, ultrasound, endocrine panel, and histopathology. So on history, uh, we'll get abnormal behavior with prolonged anustrous lymphomania and most often aggressive salient-like behavior. On palpation, then we'll find a one, one enlarged ovary and one very small contralateral ovary. On ultrasound, usually we see a multicystic honeycomb appearance um, and endocrine panel. Then we'll have some elevated concentration of AMH of, or anti-mullerian hormone, elevated concentration of inhibin and or testosterone. And also we often have a low progesterone level indicating absence of active luteal tissue. And of course, uh, on histopathology, uh, it should be consistent with the GCT. That's how we do, we diagnose the classic GCTs. So what would your differential diagnoses be for this condition? And how do you rule them out? Okay, so I'll, I'll take that. Because the, the classic uh, description or the classic GCT presentation is, is actually probably a pretty advanced stage of disease. 
And I think with some of these endocrine markers that we've developed over the last few years, we're, we're starting to uh, diagnose them earlier and earlier. The list of differentials relates to each of the primary presenting signs or the history. Um, aberrant behavior, uh, as just described, uh, apparently uh, reproductive stadium-like behavior or aggression, even herding or other unusual behaviors that might affect a mare's performance or attitude could arise as a result of a change in the environment, as when a mare has moved and encounters unfamiliar horses or circumstances, or even unfamiliar animals are introduced into their environment. Change in behavior or performance could arise as a result of uh, conditions such as musculoskeletal pain or discomfort, as you might find in a mare that's wind sucking or urine pooling with increasing inflammation. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a growing acknowledgement that these behaviours are seldom related to elevated testosterone or, or, or even in the case of, uh, of an existing GCT. Um, you know, given that the tumours uh, that secrete testosterone are even less than half of those that we diagnose, there's really uh, very little, if any, correlation with testosterone concentration. So that's commonly thought to be the case. The, um, the enlargement of the ovary could be caused by a number of other tumours uh, on your differential list, including uh, some that we reported in our case series, such as uh, teratoma and adenocarcinoma, uh, even leiomyomas or non-functional sex cord stromal tumours. There are a number of others that have been reported in the literature that uh, we've not seen, I've certainly not seen. They might include uh, rhinoblastomas, dysgerminomas, or any other tumour of the connective tissue, vascular tissues, um, etc. So that uh, gross enlargement is uh, also associated with hematomas, right? And it can be difficult to distinguish this from an unusually large corpus hemorrhagicum even. So the uh, the difference between what's what's abnormal and what's normal can be uh, sometimes hard to gauge. Persistent follicular structures, some of which we believe may arise from uh, nascent GCTs, is another cause of ovarian uh, enlargement, some of which we reported in our case series. Ultrasound, of course, can provide uh, insight into the nature of these conditions, but it can sometimes be difficult to discern an organising hematoma, for instance, from a multi-cystic GCT. And we've seen cases, uh, another that we reported in this series, in which a teratoma had a cavitated appearance on ultrasound uh, and was uh, similar to a GCT in its appearance. Um, we're really unaware of any causes of elevated AMH in a mare uh, other than from a GCT, but of course you never say never in biology. We've had too few intersex cases investigated endo endocrinologically, but uh, testicular tissue in an ovotestis or in cases of pseudomaphrodism where a horse is phenotypically a mare um, but has cryptorchid testes would also present with elevated concentrations of AMH that might otherwise be associated with a GCT. And in those cases, we'd expect elevated inhibin B. But again, too few cases have really been investigated or documented thoroughly enough to make, uh, you know, really broad conclusions. Uh, lastly, I guess, elevations in testosterone in mares might arise from an adrenal adenoma. Um, androgen secreting adrenal adenomas, of course, are best investigated, have best, uh, most comprehensively investigated and best described in cats. And one or two reported cases in mares have been associated with elevated testosterone concentrations, which is pretty suggestive that these tumours can also secrete testosterone in horses. 
But honestly, I don't think there are any uh, actually verified cases of androgen-secreting adrenal adenomas in mares. And if they are, if there are such a thing, they are extremely rare. So what did you aim to present from this current paper? Well, honestly, the primary uh, goal was to provide a perspective on what is really not understood about how GCTs can present, how they behave and how they might develop based on those admittedly unusual but to us more instructive cases that we've seen or been involved with over the last eight or ten years. And it's because of what we do not appreciate these tumours that, that we think the diagnosis is not easy and these were cases we experienced that convinced us of what we do not know. The tumours can present as persistent follicular structures in some cases, as I mentioned. Um, that's a presentation that's not been well described to date. Um, they can present with ovarian enlargement, but later that same ovary may be found to be of relatively normal size, which we can only understand as having resulted from resorption of cyst fluid. We don't know how rapidly or indeed how slowly some GTs might develop over time, remaining relatively benign, I think, perhaps for years in mares that may continue to conceive and continue to fall successfully. As tumours may secrete AMH at one point, for instance, uh, at one point in time, or inhibin and testosterone or testosterone at another point in time, and a GCT can sit dormant in an ovary not secreting any hormones at all. And we've uh, documented one of those cases again in our case series. Um, it was only because we were able to monitor that uh, case over an extended period of time uh, that we could realise how variable hormone secretion can be from these tumours. So now these are all in the realms of possibility uh, for GCTs, at least in our mind. So there were 14 cases included in your paper of these non-classical GCTs and other ovarian conditions, and you split them into three groups. Um, your first group comprised of eight patients with one abnormally large ovary. Could you tell us about what you found in this cohort and why they're deemed as an unusual presentation? Uh, well... Um, not all of them were, were unusual, of course, uh, several were, but we decided to include some cases that might be considered more classical uh, in their presentations so, so as to compare them, actually compare them to those uh, others that were truly unusual. So case number two was particularly instructive to us because it's one of the few cases uh, that we've been able to monitor uh, over several months, over a year in that case, through a pregnancy and, uh, and after until the foal was actually weaned, the ovary was removed and the tumour was confirmed by histopathology. Um, this mare had a very elevated AMH concentration initially that returned to within normal limits around nine months of gestation. Um, it increased a little above normal levels uh, for a month, a month or so later um, and until foaling, but was within normal limits again two months after foaling and was still within normal limits for all of those hormones when the foal was finally weaned and the ovariotomy was performed confirming the presence of the GCT by histopathology. Uh, 
Another unusual case presented with uh, a persistent follicle. In fact, we had uh, several of those cases. Um, this one had a very uh, high AMH. It was three times the upper limit of normal. Uh, but the pathology report on the ovary that was removed at surgery described a leiomyoma. There was no description of the persistent follicular structure in the pathology report, and so no evidence of a GCT, even though the AMH was confirmed to be in the low normal range after surgery. We, we believe the GCT was there, but the leiomyoma was the dominant lesion that garnered all the pathological attention in that case. And it's our contention that very small lesions associated with GCTs can cause marked elevations of AMH inhibitor or testosterone and can easily be, uh, be missed uh, on pathology, particularly if there's a, a larger, brighter uh, lesion uh, present. And the second group describes um, two cases with bilaterally enlarged ovaries. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about this um, these pair of horses? Yeah, so the uh, concurrent appearance of GCTs on both ovaries is most certainly an unusual presentation and why we included this particular case. We, we've had uh, several cases in, in the past that have had a GCT removed at surgery and then uh, perhaps years later the second ovary develops a GCT and removed, but concurrent appearance of GCTs is a little unusual. Um, it's worth noting that, uh, that this mare was still apparently cycling, which would surprise many considering the so-called classical presentation that includes ovarian shutdown. Um, her presentation, however, included the observation that she was not working well under saddle and was judged to have painful ovaries on palpation. Again, not what might be considered uh, quote-unquote classic. Uh, the other mare uh, was the one mentioned earlier with the elevated AMH on two separate occasions, scanned in our teaching hospital, identifying a cavitation typical of a GCT on one ovary that after removal was found to contain a teratoma actually. Her AMH concentration post-surgery was still extremely elevated and we believe that the GCT was left behind in the remaining ovary. Uh, that Two was removed uh, years later, but the owners declined pathology and we weren't able to, uh, to confirm it actually at that point in time, unfortunately. And in your third group, lastly, um, you had four cases of patients with ovaries of normal size bilaterally. So what were these horses found to have? Right. Well, one of these cases had markedly elevated inhibin, had what appeared to be a persistent CL, on one ovary, which was removed and confirmed to have a GCTC, a, a granulosa theca cell tumor on pathology. Another underwent bilateral ovariectomy, even though a hormone panel was within normal limits. There was no evidence of elevated AMH or testosterone, uh, and inhibin wasn't requested in that particular case. The pathologist uh, reported a sex cord stromal tumour, uh, which the evidence suggests was not endocrinologically functional and is therefore unusual for that case. I don't know of another one that's been reported as such. Maybe hormones weren't, uh, weren't available in some of those cases, but, but we're pretty confident this was, uh, this was a non-functional uh, sex cord stromal tumour. Uh, but perhaps one of the most interesting cases in our series was the mare with clearly elevated AMH whose owners elected bilateral ovariectomy. Um, AMH was essentially undetectable in blood drawn after surgery, but the ovaries would 
deemed, both of them, uh, normal on the initial pathology examination and report. That case was actually uh, presented subsequently at biopsy rounds in the teaching hospital and our colleague and co-author reviewed the slides afterwards. Uh, he identified a small one to two millimeter follicular structure that was degenerate and without granulosa cells on one aspect, but the basement membrane was disrupted on the other side of the follicle. Uh, many granulosa cells appeared to be mitotic and appeared to be invading the interstitial tissue around the structure. We, we believe it was a nascent GCT in our mind. It provides insight into how multi-cystic GCTs might develop lesions throughout the ovary. But more importantly, it illustrates to us how lesions too small to be detected by ultrasound and small enough to be missed by a pathologist can sorry, complicate the confirmation of a GCT by histopathology. We've examined uh, many pairs of ovaries removed from mares with a similar presentation and many times have not been able to confirm a diagnosis. This becomes important uh, in our minds when you're discussing with a client the removal of ovaries that have a relatively normal and symmetrical size uh, but might not uh, be found to have a GCT if examined by a pathologist after surgery. And so it, it's a, a case really of managing expectations, both diagnostically and prognostically, um, with owners and, uh, and others. So you have quite a variety of cases here. Um, how, have, how have these cases changed the way in which, or have they, and if they have, how have they, changed the way in which you work up a mare with suspicion of a GCT? Well, I'll, uh, I'll start off with that one again, but, um, but uh, Catherine's the real clinician here and, and, uh, and uh, invite her to follow up with some uh, of her observations um, after me. Um, for me, we're extremely conservative in our approach. Uh, if there's not detectable ovarian enlargement or palpable evidence of distortion of an ovulation fossa, for instance, if a client insists on surgery, do we do our best to manage their expectations, as I mentioned earlier, with respect to the likelihood of confirming a presumptive diagnosis and, and also the expectations of improving uh, symptoms after a surgery. Uh, in my mind, if you're not confident of the diagnosis, you can't be very confident that surgery will result in an improvement of the condition. So, we are much more confident in interpreting a clearly elevated biomarker, AMH, testosterone or inhibin, uh, and much more cautious when the biomarkers within normal limits, uh, not being able to rule out a GCT as a possibility just as a result of, uh, of a negative uh, result on hormone analysis. So we, we advise clients to resample these mares two to three months later if there's, uh, if there's no uh, disparity in ovarian size, ovulation fossa, uh, we encourage them to resample two to three months later and thereafter uh, wait until there's a palpable abnormality of an ovary that provides some confirmation of the elevated biomarker, whatever that might be. It, it becomes a, a case of if you can't palpably uh, feel an abnormality in an ovary, uh, then if you're pushed for surgery, you've got to take them both out. Uh, and, uh, and then you're left with the possibility that a lesion may not be found. The clients have really just got to be aware of that fact. Um, Catherine? 
Yes, uh, on my part, uh, working on this case series has taught me a lot. Uh, as a clinician, I now pay more attention to mares with persistent anovulatory follicle or persistent CL-like structure, especially when they do not respond to ovulation-inducing agents or croprostanol during the breeding season. And therefore, I do not wait to run a GCT panel, as this case may well be unusual GCTs. I'm also more suspicious of a GCT when I have an enlarged ovary without an inactive contralateral ovary, uh, and I do not wait to run a GCT panel as well for these cases now. And finally, when histology is unconclusive, I run another AMH, or I propose to the owner to run another AMH sample to hopefully confirm a GCT by return to normal AMH level. So that taught me a lot. Um, you may have already covered this, Alan, in your last answer to the previous question, but did you find any specific hormonal changes associated with, um, specifically with any of these ovarian conditions in this series? Yeah, well, um, I guess the bottom line, uh, again, is that, uh, you know, what we observed is that hormone secretion by GCTs can be erratic and unpredictable over time. Um, so that Findings of concentrations that are within normal limits, uh, as I said before, does not rule out the possibility for GCT. But we've also observed changes in the predominant hormone secreted by a tumour, um, elevated levels of AMH uh, at one point in time and uh, maybe elevated uh, testosterone at another. Um, and, and in fact, we've found very little correlation among hormones uh, in their concentrations in the blood. This is perhaps not entirely unexpected. I mean, we know that the granulosa-derived cells within the cysts secrete AMH and inhibin, whereas the theca-derived compartment surrounding the cysts uh, is the compartment that's responsible for testosterone secretion when that's a feature, though this is still less than 50% of confirmed tumours. The lack of correlation between AMH and inhibin is a bit of a puzzle since they are derived from the same granulosa-type cells. But based on these observations, we believe it may indicate that these tumours can transdifferentiate. perhaps. After all, AMH and inhibin concentrations are secreted at very different stages of follicular development, AMH around the time of, of antral development, uh, and inhibin increasingly as uh, follicles develop to ovulatory size. So perhaps a similar stage-specific secretion of AMH and inhibin occurs in the GCTs as well. Maybe it just represents different stages of differentiation of those tumours or different compartments within those tumours. Okay, so you described that they can have erratic hormonal um, levels with these tumours. Do you find the same um, erratic nature with the way they appear over time? Well, from what we've seen, um, we have to consider the possibility that they can remain static or even dormant in an ovary in some cases. Um, the truth is we have very little understanding of how GCTs develop in the first place and how fast they grow or if they grow at all. Um, the incidental finding of GCTs in neonatal foals and in fillies of a few months of age suggests that they can develop in fetuses, and that implies that uh, growth occurs in little more or not much more than a year. But how long a nascent GCT might sit dormant, perhaps for years, um, we, we really 
really don't know. But but at least again that case two that we uh, that we were involved with um, was suspected initially on a routine. Uh, preg check at 60, 65 days of gestation, the ovary, one ovary was abnormally large. And yet at the time of foaling, both ovaries were relatively uh, normal uh, in size, relatively symmetrical. And, and that, was, that remained uh, true until the uh, ovary that had previously been enlarged was taken out at surgery. And again, as I uh, suggested earlier, um, how, how can it be that you get a decrease in size of a tumour? Because that tumour was confirmed on histopathology um, uh, subsequent to its removal. And, and I can only assume that uh, perhaps the increase in size is associated with fluid accumulation that can perhaps uh, be resorbed. In, in a few of these cases, um, you reported a lack of the, the classic behavioural changes. How can this be explained in some cases? Um, I'm not sure it can. I, I'm, I'm a little more sure that it, it can't be explained uh, based on testosterone secretional concentrations in, in at least a majority of mares. But to me, behaviour is the most complex of all uh, phenotypes or presenting signs, and it has many possible causes. And it, even statin-like behaviour is not well correlated with testosterone concentrations. Um, you know, for example, witness the occasional castrated gelding that continues to gain an erection, mount and intermit mares for years without any testicular testosterone and the lowest of detectable testosterone concentrations. Um, to me, the truth is uh, their brains sustain that behaviour and uh, physical uh, responses regardless. So, so I think uh, hormones, uh, testosterone in particular, is a little overrated in terms of an instigator of behavioural changes in these cases of suspected GCTs. So what would be your take-home message for our listeners? Well, uh, the big message was that it's not an easy uh, diagnosis unless there's obvious ovarian enlargement obvious uh, and, uh, and marked elevation of the biomarkers and there's much that we don't know or understand about how GCTs behave. Um, in the end, having that discussion with the client is crucial so that you can manage expectations in terms of uh, uh, management of the case and prognosis, uh, just keeping everything realistic, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you both for joining us and talking us through these interesting and unusual cases. Uh, we uh, uh, very much appreciate uh, the opportunity uh, to, uh, to further uh, discuss these uh, cases and what we learned from them. We hope that's uh, valuable uh, to those in the field. Um, and, uh, and we're grateful for uh, drawing some additional attention to our case series. Catherine? So we would like to thank our co-authors, uh, Dr. Kelman, Kiel, McCracken, Ball, Ferris, McHugh, and Durovny, and also the many practitioners who not only submit samples to the clinical endocrinology lab for diagnostic assays, but also provide us with invaluable feedbacks on the outcomes of many of these cases. And last, we want to thank the two technicians, Rebecca Kotterman and Casey Hoffman, 
who generate this valuable clinical data for our clients. Well, thank you both for joining us. We, we do appreciate it. Rose Tallon is an equine medicine resident in her final year at the RVC. She's joined us to discuss her paper titled Inter-Observer Variability of Two Grading Systems for Equine Glandular Gastric Disease. Rose, thank you very much for joining us for our December EVJ podcast. Could you start by telling us about the differences between squamous and glandular gastric disease in horses? I understand they present with different clinical signs and are considered as different or separate diseases. Thank you very much for having me. So that's correct. In the past five years or so, um, squamous and glandular gastric disease have emerged as two distinct entities with different pathophysiological processes for each one. With squamous disease, it's more of a classic ulcer. So you have the gastric acid eroding the squamous epithelium. The pathophysiology of glandular disease is somewhat less clear. It's been shown to be more of an inflammatory process with a breakdown of the normal protective mucus and bicarbonate layers. In terms of clinical signs, these are quite varied and non-specific. There's also considerable overlap between the two conditions in terms of clinical presentation. So diagnosis has to be based on gastroscopy. And it's not uncommon for horses to have both squamous and glandular disease. So how do you assess both these diseases? Are there different grading systems? Um, and is there a consensus on which grading system is best for each disease? And what differs between these different systems? So with squamous disease, assessment is relatively straightforward. A zero to four grading system was developed just over 20 years ago now, where zero is normal and four represents severe deep lesions. This system was validated and was shown to have good inter-observer agreement. It's been widely used in practice since then, and many owners and trainers are also now familiar with it. For many years, this system was also applied to glandular disease. However, as our understanding of glandular disease has improved, the need for a more suitable grading system has become clear. A variety of different lesions are seen within the glandular mucosa, and a consensus statement back in 2015 from the ECEIM recommended describing these lesions rather than using the 0 to 4 scoring system. This descriptive system classifies lesions based on severity, distribution, shape and appearance. And as you can imagine, using all these descriptors, while very accurate, makes grouping lesions for research and communication with owners somewhat challenging. More recently, um, a paper by Ben Sykes et al. used a novel 0 to 2 scoring system using um, severity of lesions and the integrity of the glandular mucosa to grade um, the lesions found. Okay, so what did you aim to look at in your study and what were your hypotheses? So at present, um, there's no validated scoring system for glandular disease. And we found that recent published work had actually reverted to the zero to four scale to group data and facilitate statistical analysis. So for our study, we want to determine the inter-observer reliability of both descriptive terminology and this novel zero to two verbal rating scale for glandular disease. We also wanted to assess if agreement improved with gastroscopy experience, specialist training 
or familiarity with the descriptive system, and we hypothesized that it would improve with all three of those. Because little is known about the severity of glandular lesions, we also wanted to ascertain which factors were associated with a lesion being considered clinically significant. So a secondary objective was to determine which descriptive variables were associated with a lesion being described as severe and which factors influenced um, a respondent's decision to treat a lesion. So how did you investigate these scoring systems um, and whether agreement depended on experience, training or familiarity with the system? We circulated an electronic questionnaire to both specialists and first opinion vets um, using the ACVIM, ECEIM and the Equine Veterinary Group UK listservs. The questionnaire contained 20 images of a variety of glandular lesions and respondents were asked to grade each image using the current descriptive terminology and the 0 to 2 verbal rating scale used by Sykes et al. Respondents were also asked whether or not they would recommend treatment based solely on that image. We then used Krippendorf's Alpha, which is very similar to Fleiss's Kappa, to assess agreement overall, and then in subcategories of respondent. So that was split by specialist status, those already using the descriptive system, regardless of specialist status, and experienced gastroscopists, so those performing 10 or more scopes per month on average. So what kind of response rate did you achieve from both specialist and non-specialist groups? And did you see any differences in the scoring systems used between these two groups? So we had 82 responses overall. 49 were diplomats of equine internal medicine and 33 were non-specialist veterinarians. We found that there was no significant difference in the scoring system used between the two groups. Only one respondent in the specialist group was using the zero to two um, scale and no respondents in the non-specialist group. Interestingly, 35% of all respondents were still using the original zero to four scoring system. And um, what kind of agreement did you find between the grading systems um, and between the two groups of observers? So first, looking at the descriptive system, we actually found that overall agreement was very poor. We then looked at each descriptive category individually, and we found that the best agreement, although this was still only moderate, was in the severity category. Agreement was worst for shape and appearance. Then looking at the subcategories of respondents for the descriptive system, we found that agreement was comparable among diplomats and respondents who currently use the descriptive system in practice, regardless of their specialist status. The 0 to 2 verbal rating scale had similar agreement across all categories of respondent. And when all responses were taken together, um, the 0 to 2 scale and the severity category of the descriptive system actually showed similar agreement. And what factors did you find influenced the observer's decision to grade a lesion as severe? So this was quite interesting. We found that appearance and shape were associated with lesions being described as severe. 
depressed lesions were four times more likely to be described as severe compared to flat lesions. And hemorrhagic or fibrinoseppurative lesions were both three times more likely to be described as severe than erythematous lesions. This suggests that loss of mucosal integrity, which is what the verbal rating scale, the zero to two score is based around, um, was associated with severity. So we then looked at how the zero to two score and the severity category of the descriptive system were related. We found that description of severity was associated with the zero to two score. A lesion with a score of two was 75 times more likely to be described as severe than a lesion with a score of one, suggesting that it may be possible to extrapolate to this new zero to two scoring system based on um, the severity descriptor. Interestingly, distribution was not associated with a lesion being graded as severe. And this is somewhat at odds with the original zero to four scoring system, which essentially links distribution of lesions with severity. So um, diffuse lesions would be considered as much more severe than a focal lesion in that system. You also looked into um, how respondents chose to treat the lesions. So what did you find um, with regards to how they decided to treat the different types of lesions? So this was something we were a little bit more limited on. We essentially only really asked them if they would treat a lesion or not, because we were only using images without giving them um, a clinical background. Um, this made it a little bit more difficult to interpret. In practice, there are so many factors that influence A, the decision to treat and B, what treatment you would choose. So if a horse wouldn't take oral medications, you may consider an injectable formulation. So it was a little bit difficult to kind of um, delve into that in more detail. At present, there are not different recommendations for different types of glandular lesion. Um, and we don't know how different lesions respond to these different treatments available. And this would certainly be something to explore in the future. Overall, which system would you recommend using in future? And is there any further work needed to optimise um, a grading system for future use? I think at the moment, you know, the descriptive system is certainly the most accurate given the um, variety of lesions that we see in the glandular mucosa. But as I mentioned before, it does have its challenges when applied to research um, and communicating with owners. So telling them that a lesion is, you know, multifocal, hemorrhagic and raised isn't going to mean a huge amount to them. Um, and they've become quite wedded to this number. Um, and also you can tell them it's improved from a grade two to a grade one. Um, so I think using maybe extrapolating to this zero to two system or potentially a zero to three. So you could use normal, mild, moderate and severe might be um, an alternative going forward. However, I think ultimately, as, as we understand more about clinical signs pertaining to disease and the response of these different types of lesions to treatment, we will hopefully be able to develop a more comprehensive scoring system. But in the meantime, I think additional training um, to increase familiarity with the descriptive system may improve agreement for situations where it is used. And what would your take home message for all our listeners um, carrying out gastroscopy be? 
So I think this work shows that um, inter-observer agreement with the descriptive system is poor and something that we need to be aware of. Our work suggests that additional training may improve agreement and that we need to have better definitions for um, the descriptive parameters, particularly for shape and appearance. I think for research purposes or for simplifying owner communications, then the zero to two system represents an attractive alternative. And it's also um, a very good idea to kind of save images when performing gastroscopy um, in order to minimize um, disagreement and to ascertain if improvement is seen following treatment. Okay, Rose, well, thank you very much for um, joining us to chat about your research. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again for listening and we hope you join us in the next year. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.